Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, and we bless you, Lord, and we give you glory. So grateful, <clears throat> Lord God, to be uh, here uh, amongst uh, fellow believers and those who, Lord God, have taken the time to come and, and gather, Lord God, and to assemble and to offer up uh, corporate praise and worship unto you. Pray, God, that all that we say and do would bring honor and glory to your name. And as your word goes forth, Lord, I claim the promise in Isaiah 55, Lord God, as, as the rain falls from heaven and it waters the land and provides bread and food for those, Lord God, and then it returns to heaven. I pray that your word would fall on fresh soil, ground that is thirsty and hungry to receive it, and Lord, it would accomplish what you please. And so bless this hour, bless this time, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Judges, and we're going to go through chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, and so I'm going to try to get through that. Just a little bit about, you know, uh, my own personal story. I am a pastor with U-Turn for Christ. I've been a part of U-Turn for 20 years now. It's a long time. I know I, I, know I don't look a day over 25, I know. And so the Lord used the ministry of U-Turn for Christ to save my life from a, a lifestyle of addiction uh, many years ago, and I'm grateful for that. And then the Lord called me to be one of the individuals that uh, the founder of U-Turn for Christ sent out to oversee uh, U-Turn for Christ ministry. And I've been out here since 2001. I'm a long way from home. I actually grew up in Los Angeles many years ago, and uh, this is my home now. I don't miss California at all kind of grown to the point where I kind of like the slow, easy way of the Southeast. And so this is home for me. God's blessed me with a wife and children. Uh, all of that came about as I turned to the Lord, so I'm grateful for that. When I first started doing this years ago, it was kind of, uh, particularly in the body of Christ, kind of uh, a bad thing for um, believers to have individuals who were struggling with addiction. And as a matter of fact, many years ago, uh, a lady who used to be at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, called me. She wouldn't give me her name, um, but she had a son who was in addiction. And she didn't say uh, why she didn't give me her name, but I kind of felt like maybe she was ashamed or embarrassed. And so I just want to let you guys know, there's not a family on this earth, I believe, that's not been impacted in some way, whether it be someone close or someone, a distant relative, that's not been impacted by uh, addiction. And it's not something that we should be ashamed about, something that can be freely talked about because God sets us free. It's no different than the sin of idolatry. It's no different than the sin of hating God. It's sin. It's not a disease. It's sin. And we need to recognize that. And, and the freedom from that sin is just like freedom from any other sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ, since you turn for Christ, you make a uh, turn away from the sin of addiction, and you turn to the Lord, and he'll set you free. He's done it for me. So I just wanted to give that word. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Judges. And what we're going to see is a very interesting time and place in the history of uh, the nation of Israel. God has redeemed his people from oppression from the Egyptians. And by the hand of Moses has led them out and they're in the wilderness about to go into the promised land. Uh, the period of Judges starts with the death of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and ends with the coronation of Saul. And so Moses brings them to the promised land 
and they get into it and we'll get more into that. But Joshua is the one who ultimately leads the men. This portion of Israel's history is perhaps the most sordid, uh, the saddest, the darkest time in Israel's history. Uh, and it's magnified by the verse Judges 21:25 that says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the theme throughout uh, the book of Judges. Uh, the people of God began to do what they felt was right in their own eyes. Way back in Genesis chapter 15, God spoke to Abraham, uh, the father of the Jewish nation, and he gave Abraham a, a promise. After these things, verse uh, 1 of chapter 15 says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childish, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward the heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord and counted it to him, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit. This was spoken to Abram, Abraham, the father of the Jews, over 600 years ago. And so as the nation of Israel was brought out, redeemed from the Egyptians by Moses, by the hand of Moses, they're entering into this promised land and they're fulfilling what God promised some 600 years ago. The fulfillment of this covenant began to be realized in the book of Joshua. The mantle of leadership for the people of Israel was passed on from Moses to Joshua. Moses had passed away, and the responsibility for leading the people of Israel into the promised land was given over to Joshua. And by the way, what a great picture for you and I. Moses, who represents the law, brought them to the edge of the promised land, and then the mantle was passed to Joshua. Joshua... His name means Jehovah is salvation, is a picture of Christ. And so we recognize that the law cannot bring us into the promised land. Only by Christ and him alone can we find salvation. And so what a great picture that the scripture gives us in that regard. Joshua 1 verse 7 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to uh, the land which I'm giving you, the children of Israel. Every place that your soul treads, I'm sorry, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I, will give, I have given to you, as I have said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great uh, sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. 
As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. For this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Now the reason why I, I've read those two scriptures they were lengthy. The reason why is I want, I want us to see and recognize that over 600 years ago God made this promise. Father Abraham. And now they're on uh, the cusp of going there. They've entered in, actually, and they've, they've gotten the promised land. And then right before Joshua leads the people in, God says, again, I'm with you. And the land has been given to you. That's a very, very important principle and concept that I want us to understand. God said, I've given it to you. I've given it to you. He keeps repeating it over and over again. I've given it to you. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the people of God were not completely obedient to remove the Canaanites from the land. And in Numbers chapter 33, 55, it says this. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those who you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your flesh. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Verse 56. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And unfortunately, this word became a reality. See, as long as they were obedient to do what God said, go in and take possession of the land. God says, I'll be with you and I'll, put, I'll protect you and I'll provide for you. And they did in the beginning. And we'll see that. But then something happened along the way. The book of Judges records Israel living in an apostate way and it's, it records the cycle of sin some seven times. And, and here's the sin cycle. The nation would sin against God. God would allow for them to be oppressed uh, by uh, a people. Uh, the people would cry out to God and they would repent. God would raise up a judge and he would deliver them. And that cycle was repeated some seven times. And so it is with us. God has commanded us to keep his commands, to obey him. But when we fall into idolatry, when we become disobedient, he will at times allow us to be disciplined for what we have done. And notice I said when we fall, not if we fall, when we fall into disobedience. Because you and I are those who are prone to sin. But God is gracious, and this is, we'll see the grace of God, even in this difficult, dark time in the nation of Israel, so he is with us. As often as we confess and ask God to forgive, the Bible says that he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And so even though this was a dark period of time in the nation of Israel, it's a great lesson for us. Yeah, they got caught up in idolatry, burning their children, sacrificing them before false gods and, and all kinds of idolatry, yet God was gracious time after time after time. When they would repent, God would relent and he would come to rescue them. So simply put, are you not glad that he's a God of grace? He's a God of grace. You know, and I know I'm not the only one that's blown it a bunch of times. Well, maybe one time, I don't know. <laughs> but he's a God of grace, man, and, and that is such a, a reassuring thing for you and I to know that uh, you know, when we, when we fail, when we 
when we don't live up to what we know we should do or what we believe God wants us to do, that we don't have to turn away, run away from him. We need to be turning running to him because he is that God of grace. Simply put, obedience to God's word brings peace. Disobedience brings oppression and death. And faithfulness of God brings forgiveness. So let's take a look. Chapter 1 of Judges, verse 1. Now the death of Joshua, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So here we have it. Joshua's passed away. They had made an incursion into the promised land, but God didn't give them the whole victory. And in chapter 3, I believe he says the reason why he did that is so those who were coming up would learn how to, to wage war. So they didn't completely remove all of the Canaanites, all of the people that were in the territory. No longer is Joshua with them. The man who took the mantle from Moses, the mediator, if you will. And so now Israel is asking the question, who's going to go up for us? Who's going to be the one that leads us? Who's going to be our mediator? Who shall go up? There was no one to stand in that gap. And that's the root problem for the nation of Israel. No mediator between them and God. Way back in, I believe it was in Exodus chapter 15, uh, when they were at Mount Sinai. And the Lord came down uh, from heaven and he was hovering over the mountain. And the Lord told Moses to gather all the people up together and have them come to the foot of the mountain. Because God was going to speak to them. And when God spoke, the mountain quaked and there was this great fire and there's this booming voice that came out and the people were afraid. And so they told Moses, Moses, you talk to God. We don't want to talk to him lest we die. And so ever since then, Moses was that mediator. God would speak to him and then Moses would come back and speak to the people. So when Moses passed away, that mantle was passed on to Joshua. Now Joshua's not there and there's no mediator to go before the Lord. And so it is with you and I. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 13 says this. For in the blood of bulls and goats. And the ashes of heifers. Sprinkling the unclean. Sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit. Offer himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. 15. And for this reason he is the mediator. Of this new covenant. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about Christ being better, better than the Old Testament. And here it's talking about that ceremonial cleansing that they did in the Old Testament that would cleanse the flesh. How much more the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from sin. And he's the mediator of the new covenant. Christ is the one who bridges the gap between sinful man, wretched man, and holy God. And so we need a mediator just as they needed a mediator then to go before the Lord. But our mediator now is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God speaks directly to us through the mediator, Jesus. Going on in verse 2, it says, And the Lord said Judah shall go up indeed I have delivered the land into his hands so Judah said to Simeon his brother come up with me to my allotted territory that I may that we may fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to the allotted territory and Simeon went with him then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the parasites into their hand and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek 
and they found Adonai Bezek and Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and cut him, um, caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table as I have done. So God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. And so who's going to go up? The Lord says Judah going to go up. And Judah says, okay, we're going to go up. But then he asked Simeon to go with him. Now, this is an interesting situation. God says to go up. Who's going to go up? Judah. Now, I can't be dogmatic on this. However, the picture for me and what I see is God has already said, I've given you the land. Just go up and take it. I've given you the land. And they ask who's going to go up. Judah goes up. Judah, you're going to go up. But Judah says, okay, um, Simeon, go up with me. But the Lord said, go up, right? He said, the land's been delivered in your hand, right? So why do you need Simeon to go up with you? The Lord says that the land's been delivered to you. And again, I can't be dogmatic on that. I'm not a military general, but I believe that God would have given them the victory if Judah would have went up by himself. I believe that. There's a reason why I'm bringing that up. God's going to bring them the victory even though they didn't follow all the way through and be completely obedient in what God wanted him to do. The Lord says, I've given you the victory. I've given you the land. So question, if I said, I, I called you, hey, I've got $100 over here I, I want to give you. All you got to do is come over. I'll be right over there. You hang up the phone. Um, honey, would you go with me? Uh, Pastor Steve said he's going to, no, you don't have to do that, right? You're going to do what? You're going to go get in your car and you're going to come get some money. And my point is this, God had already said that he had delivered the land to them. As subtle as this is, this begins to kind of formulate this whole idea of every man doing what is right in his own eye and not following what the word of God says completely. They didn't fully, completely trust in what God was saying. The Lord brings victory anyway because he's gracious and he honors his word. And then finally in verse 7, uh, we see a little principle. It's called sowing and reaping. Uh, the king Adonai Bezek said that there were 70 kings that lived without thumbs and big toes and gathered scrap up under his table. And so it is that God has done the same with him. Uh, the principle of sowing and reaping. In verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it and they struck it with the sword, with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight the Canaanites who dwelled in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba and they killed Shisha, Ahiman and Talma. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. So they continue in this conquest. And great beginnings. God is giving them the victory. Judah takes Jerusalem and they take Hebron. Hebron is the place, way back in the book of Numbers, I believe chapter 13, where when the, uh, Moses sent out 12 spies to spy out the land. And they went out and they spied out the land of, of milk and honey. 
And they came to the city of Hebron. And Hebron was where Anak was, Anakin's giants. And what they saw and the report they brought back was there were giants in the land and they made us look like grasshoppers and the walls were fortified all the way up to the heavens. And so out of that 12, 10 came back with that report. But there were two who said, no, God has given us the land. We can go up and we can do this. Anybody know those two? Joshua and, and Caleb. They came back and said, no, we got this. We can do this. But now they're going to, to Hebron and they're following through and God's gracious. And what they're doing is they're realizing what God told them some 45 years ago. God gives them the victory. God is bringing victory as they move into the promised land. But I want you to see something. Even though God had promised them, okay, the land is yours. The land is yours. Even though God had promised them that, they still had to fight, right? It wasn't like they were going to go in. The people were just going to fall down and say, okay, come in and take my land. So here are God's great promises, and they're realizing that. But they had to fight for it. There was battles. And so it is with you and I. God has given us great promises in the new covenant. But you and I many times have to do spiritual battle. And I'm going to give you just a few of those promises. The first one, God has promised us peace, has he not? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything worthy of praise, meditate on these things. God has given us peace. But there are times we have to fight, battle for that peace. We have to get before the Lord. We have to pray. We have to meditate. We have to sin ourselves in the presence of God. God has given us the promise of victory over our enemy. Romans chapter 8, verse 37, one of my favorite uh, places in Scripture. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God has promised us victory, but sometimes we have to go to war with the enemy for that victory. God has promised that he will always be with us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In times when we don't feel like God is with us, he says, I am there. But I have to fight through what the world is showing me, what my mind is telling me, what I'm feeling within, to know and rest in that promise that God says that he's with me and he will not leave me. He's always with me. God promises to provide for our needs, Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply all your need, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be rich? It means you got a whole lot of something, huh? God says all of his riches are at your disposal, and he'll provide them for you. God promises his love. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that, uh, than to lay down one's life for his friends. But God demonstrates his life in Romans 5, 8. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have a demonstration of God's love. It's not just a promise. He showed it on the cross. He demonstrated that love. And then finally, the ultimate promise. God has promised us eternity with him forever. 
And I see a bunch of young faces around here. And I'm sorry, kids, but I'm so tired. I'm ready for him to come. Come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, not, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know the way you know. The promise of eternal salvation in Christ is not a promise that we have to fight for. For we know that it's a gift. However, the, the battle that's being waged, particularly in the days that we're living in, I don't know if any of you guys heard, but in California, the governor mandated that the church couldn't sing. Yeah, that's what I said. There is a battle going on in the times that we're living in against the, the church, the body of Christ. Subtle in some ways, not so subtle in others. And so we don't have to fight for our eternal salvation in Christ. That's a free gift that God has given us. But I tell you what, we got to stand our ground. You know, we got we gotta, to live life in, in what God has promised us, knowing that in the end, even if I have to sacrifice my life in this day, that I spend eternity with him forever. And so those are, are promises that God has given us that we have to do battle with, uh, just as the nation of Israel had to battle, even though the promise of the, uh, the land that was before them, God had already given them. Verse 12 through 15 speaks about Caleb taking Hebron, and he's the one that conquered Hebron, and that land was given to him, and his daughter was given to the first judge that we'll see later on in the book of Judges. Drop down, if you will, to verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness, which lies in the south near Eret. And they went and they dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon and they attacked the Canaanites who in, uh, inhabited Zephyr and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Horma. Also Judah took Gaza with his territory, Ashkelon with his territory, Ekron with his territory. So the Lord was with Judah and they drove out and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because of their chariots. They could not, or they would not. Caleb had expelled the people who were in Hebron, and now the, uh, the conquest is beginning to move further. But eight times between verse 19 and 21 through 36, eight times we see did not drive out, did not drive out. And one time we see could not drive out, as in this particular verse here in verse 19. Could not drive out the inhabitants. And, and why does it say could not drive out the inhabitants? Because they had what? Chairs, right? But is that a truth? Let me see. Uh, remember back in Exodus? Uh, remember Pharaoh? Remember when, when Moses was leading them after uh, God had unleashed the plagues and they let him go and they were coming to the Red Sea? And remember Pharaoh's had a second thought like, wait a minute. And he got into his chariot 
and a bunch of other chariots, and they went after him. What happened to the chariots? Did God defeat them? So what's going on here? Oh, it's contradiction, Pastor. Uh, no, it's not. They would not drive them out. God had already given them in the hand. They would not. Eight times, they did not drive out. They did not drive out because they became comfortable with just having a little. And then ultimately, what happened was that as they did not drive out, they settled for less of what God wanted, complete and total victory, and they began to bring those people under tribute, under tribute. And so even though God had given um, the nations into their hand, and we can look at it, verse 20, and they, uh, they gave Hebron to Caleb, and then verse 21, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. Uh, verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. V um, verse 28, and it came to pass when uh, Israel was strong, they did not, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Verse 30, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or its inhabitants. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Achor or the inhabitants of Sidon. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh or the inhabitants of Bethan in Ajalon and in Sabaean. Yet the strength of the house of, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they put them under tribute. That was the whole point. You know what? Yeah, why would it be to our advantage to completely destroy them? I got a good idea. How about if we just put them under bondage and, the, and they could pay us? They could give us tribute. There again, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so instead of, God said go in and completely do what? Wipe them out. Utterly destroy them. But someone said, I got a better idea. Let's not do that. Let's make our lives, our jobs easier. How about we just put them under tribute and they can pay us? It came back to haunt them for sure. And so we see that. Verse 2, it says, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not draw them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. The angel of the Lord, we see a theophany where God shows up and he brings their sin before them. And because of that, God says that I will no longer drive out the people. And the people, look at what it says in verse 4, wept. It says, verse 4, so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and what? 
and they wept. Godly repentance, godly sorrow, no. Godly sorrow produces complete and total repentance. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 says this, For even if I made you sorry with my little, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrowful after a godly manner, that you might suffer lost from us in nothing. And here it is here. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This was not a godly sorrow, even though they shed tears. Verse 7, the people uh, served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done, for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in Temnath Hiras, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaish. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose with them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done. Then the children of the Lord, verse 11, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and forsook the Lord of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they, borrowed, they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to his anger. They forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. And so it begins this sin of falling away from God. It says they left God and they followed, they forsook him. Verse 11 through 13 says the people did evil. They forsook, that word means to depart, to abandon. And they followed, they, that means to walk with. And that's the natural progression. When we stop walking with the Lord, when we forsake God, we begin to walk with another God. It may not be a, an idol that you have in your, your bedroom where you bow down to, but when we leave God, the true living God, we begin to follow other false gods and then God brings his judgment and he's true to his word but we also see the compassion of God the people walked away from him they fell into a, a idolatry they fell away they became apostate but God would raise up an, uh, a, a judge to deliver them from their oppressor and in closing, I want to give us a couple of things. There's a couple of applications that I want us to see. God told the people to drive the Canaanites out. They didn't. They settled for putting many under tribute so they could reap the benefit so they thought. The Canaanites were wicked and evil people. Here's a lesson for us. When we compromise, when we think we know better than God, when we begin to do things our way, we're doing the same thing that Israel was doing then. We begin to do what? what's right in our own eyes. When I remo remove King Jesus from the throne of my heart and begin to do what I want to do, I'm going to reap the same results that the nation of Israel. Oppression and ultimately crying out to God and asking him to deliver me from that. Even in spite of the rebellious disobedience over and over again, the Lord had pity and compassion on his people. And he would come in and rescue them time after time after time after time again and again. And again, as we spoke about this earlier, 
God is a God of grace and compassion. And his grace is in his mercies anew every morning. So as I get before the Lord every morning, I can start my life today with a clean slate. I don't have to bring the sins of, of days past into today. God is a God of grace. God has made a covenant with us. The book of Hebrews says it's a better covenant. And we can know for certain that he will pour out his grace upon grace upon us. And God loves us. He has not left us nor forsaken us. We sung it this morning. He is with you. He is with you. He is with you. So hold on to that. And then finally, got a question. What's the greatest motivator that would cause me to be obedient to the Lord? What is the greatest commandment? Matthew chapter 22. Teacher in verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if I say I love the Lord, I'm going to do what? I'm going to be obedient to his word. I'm going to obey what he calls me to do and asks me to do. And so what's the greatest motivation for keeping God's word? Finally, John 14, 15. If you love me, you keep my commands. Greatest motivator family is love for God. Love for God. Love for God. And if I love him, I'll do what he asked me to do. And we're living in times where the line is, is blurred. I think somewhere in the Bible, the Bible says there's going to come a time when evil is going to be good and good is going to be evil. Have we made it there yet, family? Yeah, we're there. Yeah, we're there. We are there. We are there. And so how do I know what's right and what's wrong? Thus saith the Lord. And so in these times, in order for me to live the way God wants me to live, I use his word. I use his word. And we need to be students of that. God's way is always the better way, amen? It always is. And I know there's somebody out there who's decided to go the way that he thought was the better way. And what happened? God says, ah, nope, don't do that. Come on back. But we know that we have a God who's gracious, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that we do have a God who is gracious and merciful and kind. And Lord, as we rest in that truth and in that promise, your way is the better way. And Lord, there are times when that way may not be easy. That way may not be the way that we desire. That way may be difficult. But Lord, as we surrender to your will in our lives, you bring the victory. And we thank you for that. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would encourage your children, your family here to just trust in you, Lord, and to believe that no matter the difficulty of the times that we live in, you're still enthroned in the heavens on high and you reign forever and that there is nothing going on on this earth or in the lives of your believers, your children, that you're not aware of. And so we find comfort in that. Lord, we thank you, and we bless you. We give you glory. Amen. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.